Hey podcast listeners, it's Jim Siegler. Every 40 seconds, somebody in the U.S. has a stroke. And every four minutes, somebody dies of one. That represents one out of every 20 deaths. Almost 800,000 new strokes occur every year in the United States, and about 6.5 million American adults have survived one. Most strokes are ischemic, as you know, about 80%, meaning a loss of blood flow to the brain has caused irreversible damage. About 15% are hemorrhagic, and the remaining 5% are due to other causes. But a very small percentage of those hemorrhagic strokes are due to transformation of the ischemic infarction into an area of intracranial bleeding. And that's what we'll be talking about on the program today. Hemorrhagic conversion. Why this happens, when it happens, and what do you do when it happens? Don't go anywhere. The topic for this week was requested by one of the listeners to our program, Jonathan Wimmer, who's a neurology resident from Chile. And to navigate us through the case, I'm joined by Dr. Ava Lieberman. Can you hear me? I can hear you great now. Nice. The audio quality in- Ava was previously a fellow at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania while I was a resident, and I remember calling her all the time from the ED when seeing patients. I'm from New York. I did my fellowship training at Penn with you and um, did my residency at Northwestern. I'm in my second year of my job. Where she is an assistant professor of vascular neurology at the Montefiore Medical Center in New York. The Bronx is kind of a show, um, so it's like a lot of sick, sick people with horrible access to care. So it's very busy and very um, complex, but uh, but it's it's good. It's good. I think I'm getting my K um, in July. I feel like you were always the wise one. To me, you were my fellow, and you were my fellow for two years, but you always were wise in your decision-making and confident. And I think that that's a skill that isn't necessarily taught and is something that people should appreciate and do appreciate. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, it's true. You know, one of the things I'm interested in is, um, is sort of like diagnostic reasoning and diagnostic decision-making, mm. and it is hard, you know, and I think one of the things that a few years has taught me is that sometimes, you know, you really don't know the right answer. And it's continuously challenging to be a physician, even when you feel sort of confident about certain choices. There are tons of other choices where you just sometimes there's no right answer and you just don't know what to do. So I think it's a humbling experience in a lot of ways to be a doctor. It's uh, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the complications and the difficulties inherent to decision-making, I've asked you to be on the show just to talk about a case that I saw and to kind of walk us through the case. So if it's okay, we'll just go ahead and get started. Oh, yeah, sure. So a 68-year-old woman with atrial fibrillation who takes aspirin, who also has hypertension and diabetes, presented via fire rescue for acute onset of left face and arm weakness and left hemi neglect that began approximately three hours beforehand. Her blood pressure in the emergency room was 152 over 75, heart rate was 75, and irregularly irregular, and the NIH stroke scale was 12. Head CT confirmed a hypoattenuating region of the right frontal cortex with an aspect score of 8. CTA of the head and neck identified a distal right M2 occlusion with CT perfusion imaging notable for a penumbra volume of approximately 16 cc's. Given the severity of her deficits and no contraindications to intravenous thrombolysis, the patient was given IV alteplase, or TPA. The occlusion was thought to be too distal for any endovascular recanalization, so conventional angiography was not attempted. She was ultimately admitted to the neuro-ICU and monitored using a standard institutional protocol that was consistent with the AHA guidelines. 
One hour after completion of the TPA infusion, her NIH stroke scale worsened from 12 to 18. She was taken immediately for a stat head CT, which identified an area of hemorrhagic transformation. These images have been posted to our blog, but for the listeners out there who can't see the pictures, there's a new area of heterogeneous hyperdense signal in the right frontal lobe, about 5 by 4.5 by 4 centimeters, with 5 millimeters of midline shift. This was consistent with an evolving hemorrhage and mass effect. Ava, can you briefly walk us through how you'd interpret this information and clinical change and what this means for the patient? Yeah, so, you know, I I think the acute management of this case made a a lot of sense. You've got a lady with an acute ischemic stroke who I think appropriately got TPA and really had no contraindications for it. And now it looks like you've got somebody with um, a pretty large hemorrhagic transformation um, of their ischemic infarct um, within 24 hours of their TPA being administered. And I guess the TPA has already stopped infusing. That's correct. Yeah. So, you know, I think my first thought would be, let's try to reverse the TPA that this woman this woman got. Okay. And how do you typically reverse TPA? So this has actually been a bit of a change. You know, the new guidelines um, changed from the old ones. When I, you know, when I was a fellow and um, up until, I don't know, a month ago, we were giving cryo and platelets. And now the newest guidelines actually recommend same thing. So cryoprecipitate 10 units over 10 to 30 minutes. And you can just get that in right away. And now they actually recommend some antifibrinolytic agents, um, transexamic acid or um, aminocaproic acid. Um, as uh, two other potential reversal agents. It should not surprise you, but I'm going to tell you anyway, that experts recommend patients be emergently evaluated for the cause of an intracranial hemorrhage and treated with the goal of reducing hematoma expansion, mass effect, and complications like obstructive hydrocephalus or herniation that can follow. In our case, however, it's most likely that this patient's experiencing a hemorrhagic transformation of an ischemic stroke rather than some other cause of infarct and intracerebral hemorrhage, something like a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Symptomatic hemorrhage following IVTPA, meaning intracerebral hemorrhage with worsening neurologic deficits, occurs in 5-7% to of patients who get TPA, and the risk is greater in older patients and patients who have severe strokes, patients with early ischemic changes on head CT, and anyone with underlying vascular risk factors like diabetes and hypertension. Mortality rates may be as high as 60%, so it is one of the most feared complications of this potentially life-saving treatment in acute ischemic stroke. And although IVTPA has a half-life of less than 5 minutes, its terminal half-life is still much longer. The terminal half-life refers to the duration that it takes for IVTPA to lose half of its biologic effects. Therefore, experts believe that it's reasonable to reverse TPA up to 24 hours after infusion has completed. And we do this using cryoprecipitate, or fresh frozen plasma, platelets, and tranexamic acid, although the evidence supporting these protocols are rather limited. So it's an area where there's really a dearth of, um, of evidence-based medicine. And then we usually check a serum fibrinogen level to make sure it's over 200 milligrams per deciliter, and this just proves that the cryo worked. Often, we'll call neurosurgery as well, if the hemorrhage is large. But then you've got to ask, how large is too large. Yeah, so I think the best way to think about hemorrhagic transformation after stroke in terms of severity is really twofold. Uh, the first is the neurological changes, and, and this woman, I think, went from an NIH stroke sales score of 12 to 18, so pretty significant clinical worsening. And different trials have used different definitions of symptomatic hemorrhage, and you know what exactly the symptoms are is variable, and we can, we can talk about that later. So that's one way. 
And then the, the other way is to think about the radiographic appearance of the hemorrhage. And that's a little bit more um, consistent. Yeah, a little bit less like wishy-washy and not as subject to variability of the examiner. So so that, I think, is the best way to, to think about this woman's bleed. And, you know, there are a couple of different criteria. I think the most commonly used criteria is still the ECAS criteria to look at radiographic radiations of hemorrhagic transformation. So, the ECAS investigators classified hemorrhagic transformation into four distinct subtypes based on their radiographic appearance, like Ava mentioned, two groups of two. In the first group, with the least amount of bleeding, it was referred to as hemorrhagic infarction grades one and two. Hemorrhagic infarction type one is just a little bit of small petechiae in the infarct bed itself, in the ischemic bed itself. Then hemorrhagic infarction grade two. Sort of more confluent petechial hemorrhage. And the second group of hemorrhage types were the parenchymal hematomas, which were defined by the presence of hemorrhage with mass effect. Parenchymal hematoma type 1 is less than 30% of the area has mild space-occupying amount of hemorrhage. And pH grade 2 occurs when there's even more blood. More than 30% of the infarcted area is bloody or, or there's hemorrhage in there. Uh, with significant space-occupying effect, and I think this woman's hemorrhage is a parenchymal hematoma type 2, or a PH2. I would also like to say here that lower-grade hemorrhagic infarctions may be more indicative of reperfusion, and they've not been directly associated with bad clinical outcomes. Parenchymal hematoma type 1 has been associated with early neurological deterioration, but not necessarily with worsened long-term outcomes, which is kind of interesting. Hemorrhagic infarction type 1 and hemorrhagic infarction type 2 have actually not been associated with worse outcomes in stroke patients. Whereas PH2 grade hemorrhagic transformations are strongly predictive of poor outcomes. With a mortality actually approaching 50%, as well as significant morbidity with associated with survival. So the way I sort of think about it is PH2 is bad, the other ones are not good, but PH2 is clearly bad. It's worth noting that symptomatic hemorrhagic transformation is fairly uncommon. And, you know, the, if you look at the literature, you'll see ranges from like 2 to 7%. And that's somewhat a function of the fact that symptomatic was defined differently in different trials. But that's kind of the number I would, I would sort of think about for symptomatic hemorrhages, which are typically pH2 type. And what kind of risk factors do you think of when you see a patient who may be at risk of a symptomatic hemorrhage or who has experienced it? Yeah, so, you know, there are a bunch of risk scores to help predict if someone is going to have a hemorrhage after TPA, um, which I sometimes use in talking to families before TPA, not all the time, but sometimes. But sort of intuitive ones are age, infarct size, hyperglycemia. Um, Those are kind of the big ones I think about, and blood pressure control as well prior to TPA and afterwards. So let's go back to the case and change things up a little bit. Say instead of our patient taking aspirin for AFib, she were actually on a Pixaban for primary stroke prevention, and her last dose was a few hours before her symptoms. Obviously, our patient could not have received IVTPA in this situation, so let's just say that she didn't. But the same things happened. She had an early right MCA territory infarction, which eventually hemorrhaged. What do you do now in this situation? You know, if the hemorrhage is the same size, that same pH2 that, that we saw earlier, I would definitely reverse the Apixaban. Unfortunately, we don't yet have any specific antidotes for Pixaban, Rivroxaban, Adoxaban, or, or the newest one, um, it's Batrixaban, unlike Dibigatran, which is one of the older DOACs. So typically, we, we reverse um, Apixaban with prothrombin complex concentrate. 
And the typical dosing is 25 to 50 units per kilogram. Let me jump in here for a sec. It's important to acknowledge that while this entire program today is all about hemorrhagic transformation of cerebral infarction and reversal strategies, you shouldn't reflexively jump to the reversal agent if you happen to hear that there's blood on the brain. You know, I've often gotten calls in the middle of the night by colleagues or, or um, other physicians saying, you know, there's blood on this head CT in a lady who's gotten TPA. And you look at it and sometimes it's just the smallest HI type 1 or maybe it's really not even any anything. Um, so it's important to look at the scan when you get called in the middle of the night because otherwise you'll end up reversing potentially something that's not even a, a significant hemorrhage at all. The other thing I would say is that you know it's important to make sure that even though this woman was on a pixaban and now has a hemorrhage ostensibly from the reperfusion in the setting of therapeutic anticoagulation or just from therapeutic anticoagulation alone, it's important to make sure she doesn't have any other coagulopathies basic labs like a CBC and coags are important because sometimes people are on um, not what they say they're on or they have other problems like thrombocytopenia, which um, would warrant a different reversal pathway. So in that same vein, let's just say our patient were taking dabigatran rather than a pixaban. Well, dabigatran has a reversal agent, which is going to be hard to pronounce, but it's idrosuzumab or praxbind. So I think, you know, I would, I would, I would use praxbind which I actually haven't had to use, but that, that is the agent um, I would use. You know, it's specifically directed as a antibody for that drug, so I would, I would definitely use it. To make things more complicated, you know, this patient does have atrial fibrillation. She is going to be at risk for recurrent ischemic strokes and other complications from her AFib. How do you determine when a patient like her should later resume taking aspirin or even eventually an anticoagulant? The way I sort of think through that is I, I try to use some scores to help me make those sort of decisions. So I think about CHADS2 VAS score as a way to predict ischemic stroke risk, recurrent ischemic stroke risk in the setting of AFib. I know you know the CHADS2 VAS score, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The acronym indicates the risk factors that are associated with imminent stroke due to atrial fibrillation, and each letter gives you points that sum up to a score. C for congestive heart failure, H for hypertension, A for age, one point if you're 65 to 74, and two points if you're 75 or older. The D is for diabetes, S is for stroke or TIA, which gives you two points. CHADS2 VASC, one point for comorbid vascular disease, and lastly one point for female sex. So our patient, the 68-year-old woman with atrial fibrillation on aspirin, who has hypertension and diabetes, and now a new stroke, she's earned herself six points, giving her an annual stroke risk of 9.7%, if not appropriately anticoagulated. A 1 in 10 chance for every year moving forward. And then I use the HasBlood score as sort of the opposite, as a way to help me determine how high risk a patient is for a recurrent hemorrhagic event. Um, so it kind of depends on... HasBlood, in contrast to CHADS2 VASC, predicts major systemic bleeding while taking anticoagulation. You get points for uncontrolled hypertension, meaning a systolic blood pressure over 160, abnormal liver or renal function, one point for each, one for stroke, one for bleeding history or predisposition to bleeding, if you have labile INR on warfarin, if you're elderly, meaning over the age of 65, and one point, lastly, for drug or alcohol abuse. Our patient might have a score of two to four points, depending on how well her blood pressure was controlled and if she had any renovascular disease. So this might give her a four to nine percent lifetime risk of major bleeding, 
as opposed to a 9.7% annual risk of ischemic stroke. Therefore, anticoagulation would certainly be indicated, and perhaps sooner rather than later. Some, some differences. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of restarting anticoagulation antiplatelet agents, I, I typically wait between um, 24 and 72 hours before restarting aspirin, assuming the bleed is stable. So you, you know, evaluate for bleed stability at 24, 48 hours, and if it's stable, um, I'll typically restart aspirin and heparin sub-Q for DVT prophylaxis at that time. And I almost always start aspirin before starting anticoagulation unless there's some real reason to, to jump to anticoagulation for some reason. And then provided the patient can tolerate aspirin well, generally I restart anticoagulation sort of around the two-week mark between 10 days to 14 days from the initial hemorrhage. I mean, it seems like it's it's got to be a judgment call. There's no evidence really for yeah, any of this. Yeah, it's totally a judgment call. I mean, I think that if... Um, I think that if a person's got a high chads 2 vas score and they're at risk for recurrent ischemic stroke and they just hemorrhage into their infarct um, in the setting of coagulopathy that was post-TPA, I think most people would err on the two to three week mark. Yeah. Um, I think there's probably more variability to the patient as a low chads 2 vas score or has some other predisposition to bleeding or some other condition like um, cerebral amyloid angiopathy or some underlying vascular malformation. Right? This, we're assuming this is just a hemorrhagic transformation of an ischemic stroke with no underlying lesions. Funny you should mention, because <laughs> as part of your workup for the underlying cause of her stroke and hemorrhage, some people end up getting an MRI of the brain, and our patient got an MRI of the brain. On review of the imaging, you see that there are about 10 microhemorrhages that are scattered in various regions of cortex. How does this affect your decision-making regarding anticoagulation or antiplatelet use? Ha, you've made it harder. <laughs> well, first off, it depends where the hemorrhages are, right? You got to, oh, I don't know what the expression is, go where the money is, something like that. Um, so yeah, it depends where the hemorrhages are. So a lot of patients with hypertension, poorly controlled vascular risk factors will have uh, microhemorrhages on GRE or SWI, which I'm assuming these are. So if they're low bar, I worry a lot less about them. And if they're cortical and the picture is suggestive of uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, then that really changes your calculus um, a great deal. So tell me where they are, and I'll, I'll tell you what I would do. Sure. So the patient does have a history of hypertension and atrial fibrillation, but no known valvular disease. And the majority of the hemorrhages do kind of scatter along the cortical ribbon. Mm. Yeah, so that's, that's tough. So you're trying to give me a potential cerebral amyloid angiopathy picture. It's important to keep in mind that this patient hasn't had a primary ICH. They've had hemorrhagic transformation of an ischemic stroke, which is a little bit different, but they very well may have had other small hemorrhages over the years, it sounds like. So, you know, in these cases when you've got AFib and potential cerebral amyloid angiopathy, I really try to talk a lot to patients and their families to, to get a sense of, of where their priorities are. And I'm typically very hesitant to restart therapeutic anticoagulation in the setting of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Does your decision change if the patient's never had a symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage? Would make me more likely to consider it, um, particularly in the setting of a high chads 2 vas score. To consider anticoagulation? Correct, yeah. To make matters more complicated, sometimes we see acute cerebral infarctions either simultaneously with or as a consequence to an intracerebral hemorrhage. You know, it's actually really common if you look through the literature, 
some studies quote up to 40% of patients with a primary ICH who are treated actually end up having these small little hits um, all over the place. And numbers range from 15 to 40%. These small but acute cerebral infarcts have been studied in a number of retrospective registries, and they're thought to be related to the same underlying microvascular process that could have caused the hemorrhage. There is an increased risk for restricted diffusion in patients whose blood pressure is lowered too rapidly, when MAPs drop of 40 millimeters of mercury or more, and in patients who have cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Also worth mentioning here is you want to be sure that the pattern of restricted diffusion is consistent with microinfarcts, and not with metastatic disease or some other etiology, which can also present with intracerebral hemorrhage of an underlying tumor bed. I think of these as silent but deadly, which is a great editorial that you should read. <laughs> I'm just going to see what you said. Sweet. But, uh, but yeah, so, so it's not an uncommon occurrence, and I think there are sort of two and a half ways to think about um, what those small infarcts are. The first, I think, is the most sort of obvious, was that patients with primary intracerebral hemorrhage often have an underlying small vessel microangiopathy, either due to chronic hypertension and uncontrolled vascular risk factors, or from cerebral amyloid angiopathy, which also has uh, or is associated with abnormalities in the small um, vessels, obviously. So if patients bleed from that, they may just have strokes kind of related to that which may be exacerbated by the rapid blood pressure lowering that we often want or, or you know, cause in the setting of an intracerebral hemorrhage. And then the other possibility is that there's a rapid release of cytokines in the setting of an acute intracerebral hemorrhage, which creates this sort of prothrombotic inflammatory milieu that may produce sort of microthromboses, particularly in patients who are predisposed to cerebral infarct from either, you know, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, whatever it is. So that's another possibility. Um, and I think those are the two, and, you know, the sort of half is the blood pressure lowering as well, possibilities for those small lesions. And, you know, it's worth noting they are associated in some studies with adverse clinical outcomes compared to patients who do not have those small infarcts. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting area to study. When Ava and I were talking about this, I couldn't help but imagine the vascular neurologists I work with who debate this issue. You're treating a patient with acute ischemic stroke, and you happen to find some cortical microhemorrhages, and you suspect they've got amyloid angiopathy, but you also want to treat the stroke, and then you find out that the patient has AFib, and then one neurologist wants to anticoagulate the patient. But another neurologist is crying bloody murder, telling you not to start a blood thinner. And then you've got somebody else in the background suggesting a watchman device to be placed in their left atrial appendage, which can reduce the risk of recurrent stroke due to AFib. But even then, you have to be on short-term anticoagulation, so that's not a perfect option either. And how many asymptomatic microhemorrhages would keep you from anticoagulating the patient in the first place? Five microhemorrhages? Ten? What if you see 20? Or 50? Would you recommend against even using aspirin? It all kind of turns my stomach, knowing that you're stuck, whatever you do. And yeah, like Ava said, it is an interesting thing to study. And we need more docs out there to study it and to treat these patients. We need docs like Ava, who really take the time to think about their patients and the complexities of their care, and to do these full and thorough workups. Cool. Well, that's, those are the questions I have. Okay. Thanks, man. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for chatting with me. And... <laughs> me too. Yeah.
I guess the next time that we'll catch up will be uh, the Stroke Conference next year in Hawaii. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah, my That's a wrap for this week. Thanks for checking out our program. The Brainwaves Podcast is produced out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Jim Siegler, Senior Producer. Music for our program was courtesy of Ghost, Kevin McLeod, and Scott Holmes. Next week, we'll be answering more interesting questions in neurology. Specifically, can depression cause dementia? Or dementia depression? Which comes first, and why? Stay tuned for that. I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves, and I'll talk to you again soon. <music>